I do want to say thank you for joining us for the really the first time that we're going to dive in together into the Gospel of Luke. Um, speaking of which, if you have your Bible on you, you can go ahead and, and turn to Luke chapter 3, or if you uh, have like a device with the Bible app on it, go ahead and turn there if you could. Um, I want to just emphasize the importance of that. Uh, it's not because you look holier if you have a Bible or that you're reading scripture along with me. It's because I want you to see what's being said, and I want you to see that it's not just my opinion or just my thought on something, but I want you to be able to compare it to God's word, and I want you to hear what I'm saying versus what God's word is saying and making sure they line up and that you wouldn't just trust me blindly in that, right? So it's just as important for your sake to be reading it um, than it is just me speaking it to you. So anyway, Luke chapter 3, we're going to be going through the whole little first section there. Verse 3 is where we're going to start, so you can get your eyes there if you want. Um, but before we actually dive in and read it together, I want to make sure um, that we have a, an understanding of who Luke is. Because last week, I didn't really get a chance to dive in too much into the history of the Gospel of Luke, or really find out much about him. We spent a lot of time talking about Theophilus, right? So give me like just a minute before we dive in um, to talk about those things. Because understanding how the Word is written, and why it was written, and who wrote it, those things bring about more confidence in the Word of God, right? That's one of our C's that we're focusing on this year, is to be confident in the Word of God. And that will allow us to trust it more, to have a better understanding of its depth, and certainly give it more authority in our lives. So, Luke, the Gospel was written around like 62 AD. So that, that means it's like roughly 30 years after Jesus died. And if you want to know more about how we know that or um, how we can come to that exact date or why we can trust that, like come up to me afterwards, shoot me an email. I'd love to nerd out with you about it and talk to you about all the biblical history and stuff behind that. Um, but at this moment, it will suffice us to say that it was written around 62 AD. And Luke, the, the guy that's writing this gospel, um, he was a, a physician. He was a doctor. Um, and not only was he a doctor, but he was a Gentile, which means he, he wasn't a Jew, right? He was a non-Jew um, doctor. And, and on top of that, and probably the thing that I find most uh, appealing and important is that Luke was discipled by the Apostle Paul. In fact, like if we're thinking about the, the four Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you recognize those names. You've probably read good chunks of them at some point. If we're thinking about those four Gospels, Luke is the one that we can attribute to have the strongest influence and impact from the Apostle Paul. Because Luke traveled with Paul. He was discipled by him. Luke was this Gentile doctor, and he wrote uh, this account almost certainly uh, under Paul's authority and teaching. As Luke says that he had eyewitnesses to some of these accounts, and he learned from those that knew Jesus. We can definitely count Paul in that because he was around at that time. He met Christ himself and came to know Christ from Jesus himself. So I just love that connection that we can even understand the authority that happens in the gospel of Luke, not because Luke himself was an apostle, but because he knew the apostle Paul. So, all right, that is just like a little bit of info, just like my two minute spiel on, on what you need to know about Luke to create just a little more credibility to the historical text that it is. So Two-minute summary, um, but I told you that as we're going through Luke, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be discovering more about Jesus. Right? We're gonna be, if we're going to center our lives on Christ, we need to understand 
more of who he is and what exactly uh, we say we're following when we say that we're a Christian. And that starts tonight. So Luke 3, um, we see that Jesus is the prophesied one. Like, and, and if you're taking notes tonight, which like taking notes is definitely a part of our culture that we encourage. Um, not like we don't do like fill in the blank and stuff here like you see on our Sunday mornings. Uh, this is about you writing down what you want to remember, what you want to come back to. I love it when people write down questions they have and like reach out afterwards. Like this is one of those great places on a Thursday night to have those discussions and be able to ask the questions, even if they sound doubtful, even if they sound like you're challenging something. Like this is the place to sharpen your mind and grow in that knowledge of the Lord. So if you were to like title the notes, it'd be Christ as the prophesied one. And you're going to notice that title a lot throughout this year. Christ as, and then fill in the blank. Because that's what we're seeing as the Gospel of Luke is centered around Christ. So, we're going to see Christ as the prophesied one. That's the first thing we're going to focus on. And the second thing we're going to focus on tonight is how the Jewish people, and then by extension us, how we should respond to the fact that he is the prophesied one. Which I'll get into right now. So, uh, Luke chapter 3, if you're looking at it right now, many of you probably have a little title that says like John the Baptist prepares the way because we find at the beginning of Luke 3, John the Baptist. If you don't know who he is, he's Jesus's cousin. He was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And there's this whole miraculous story of how John the Baptist was born. So if you want, you can go back to Luke chapter 1 and you can read through that and get a little more background on him. But at this moment, Luke is focusing on John's teaching and, and the beginning of his ministry. And if you look down at the text, it says in verse 2 there that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, and he, John, went into all the region around the Jordan, so the Jordan River, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We'll get more on that in a minute. And then Luke shows us there uh, what John the Baptist w was doing. He lays out this specific prophecy that's found in the book of Isaiah. Like Luke is very intentional to show us that what John was doing was predicted over 800 years before that. That 800 years ago, a prophet by the name of Isaiah wrote about what was going to happen when this promised one that we're talking about tonight when he was going to show up. And, that, and that's what you see. So if in your Bible, if you see it sort of like set apart or centered, that's because it's, it's quoting the Old Testament, showing that it's actually from a different book in the Bible as well. So Luke 3, chapter 4, shows exactly what John was fulfilling. It says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, um, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So 800 years before John the Baptist was born, Isaiah said that there was going to be somebody that would come out of the wilderness, which is exactly where we see John come from, that they're going to come out of the wilderness, and what are they going to do? They're going to prepare the way of the Lord, that there would be someone that would make the path straight, meaning that there would be somebody that's going to come before God, that's going to come before this long-awaited Savior, that would come before them and prepare this special place and create a way for people to know who is actually 
coming. And what Luke is saying is that John is that guy. John is the one fulfilling that prophecy. I mean, John is, okay, how many of you have been to a, some kind of concert, right? I'm talking like a, like a rock concert where there's, um, you've got usually multiple bands, right? And everyone's there to usually see one band. And that one band is usually at the very end of the night. Um, but there are bands that play before that. And what, what's their purpose? Their purpose is to get you ready for the headliner. Right? The headlining band is, is who you're there for. But their purpose is, is to create a way to increase the anticipation of what's about to happen, to create space for people to walk in and be ready uh, to listen, right? To listen to what is being said or what is being played. It's to get them to direct their attention to the stage and to, to get them excited and expectant. That's what it means to prepare the way for something. And, and John here is the one. He's, he's the opening band to the headliner. He is, he is preparing people to be ready to see and hear what the long-awaited prophesied one is going to say. And if you look back at verse 5 there, this is what a saying is going to happen when that person comes, right? So it says that John is the one saying, prepare the way. And then verse 5 shows us what is going to happen after the way has been prepared. It says, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all the flesh uh, shall see the salvation of God, meaning everything that is broken will be made right. Everything will be leveled and even. All things are going to be put back into place. The world the world will be restored and redeemed. Luke quotes Isaiah the prophet here, not only to show that what John was doing was predicted 800 years before he was ever going to do it, but what Luke is doing is he's emphasizing something. He's emphasizing that Jesus, who this whole gospel is centered around, as we've talked about, that, that Jesus is this long-awaited prophesied one he's the one who's been spoken about he's the one who is the headliner he's the one who everybody is waiting for and people have been waiting for jesus for a long time like way back at the the dawn of time really thousands of years so like i told you the prophet isaiah uh predicted 800 years before luke um, wrote this and before john the baptist did this well thousands of years before him God himself gave a prophecy that there would be someone that would come and would bring rightness to the world and would restore. So like, you can go ahead and turn there if you want. I'm going to read it, so that's totally up to you. But if you were to go all the way back to Genesis 3, which is the creation story that accounts the, the beginning of time. If you were to go back to Genesis 3, you're going to see that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They ate the fruit of the tree that they had been commanded not to. They brought sin into the world. They broke the world. And God, as he's giving them this consequences, right? God starts going into these curses that he's bestowing upon them and going into these consequences. In that moment, even in the midst of God being this fair judge, giving out this righteous judgment, even in the midst of that, God gives a prophecy and a glimmer of hope. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 
says, I, meaning God, will put enmity between you, he's talking about Satan and the woman. So God will put enmity between Satan and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So even in the midst of this punishment that God's giving out, God tells Satan that one of Eve's offspring will be a man who wounds Satan just as Satan is going to wound him. And like on this side of history and on this side of the cross, like we know that he's speaking of Christ. Christ who dealt the killing blow to sin and to death and to Satan while also giving up his own physical life for us. Christ who dealt the blow to Satan and received one himself. We know this to be about Christ now, but for people then in the time of John the Baptist, that knowledge hadn't come yet. It was just a glimmer of hope. Just a, a promise that God had made. Way back at the dawn of time. And throughout time, throughout those thousands of years leading up to this moment, God kept on building on that promise. He kept on revealing more about that promise. Like, God spoke it time and time again to the patriarchs. Like, Abraham, he told them he would bless the nations through him. Jacob, Isaac, like he continued to further his relationship with him and give him these promises. He, he continued to reveal it through the prophets like Isaiah, who we just talked about. Jeremiah, he talks about there's going to be this new covenant that's going to come someday that we will get to be a part of. God even spoke it to King David and told him specifically, someone's going to come through your line, David. Someone's going to be a king from your line forever. And he's going to redeem and save my people. God kept on giving more and more detail to this promise. He kept on building the anticipation. He kept on opening people's eyes to the fact that something was coming. Someone was coming. Someone that Satan would be defeated by. Someone that would be a king forever. Someone that would bring freedom. So that anticipation was building and building. And what Luke is saying here is that John the Baptist existed to remind people of this prophesied one. That was his whole purpose in life. The long-awaited, the long-prophesied, the long-promised Christ. The Messiah, which means chosen one. The, the Savior of man. The one who, as it says right here, would make all things right that would level the, the, fill the valleys and level the mountains and, and level all the ways and make them righteous. The one who would make all flesh see salvation. So Jesus is the prophesied one, right? That, that's, that's what I've been driving into is that um, that's what we need to learn tonight. That's the factual statement that we need to understand about Jesus is that Jesus uh, didn't just come out of nowhere. His birth, his life, his death, and his return are all things that have been predicted and prophesied and spoken about for thousands upon thousands of years. And if we are going to center our lives on Christ, that's what we need to have in mind. We need to make Christ bigger than our thoughts. We need, we need to make Christ to have more majesty in our lives, to give him the, the perspective that he to 
deserves, to uh, see him for all that it, the promise is held within him. We need to magnify him in our lives in a way that helps us understand just how amazing a fact it is that he's been prophesied about. Because the Jewish people that we're talking about here, as a culture, they saw that significance of the Messiah. They got it. They got just what it meant to wait for him. Now, not all of them did, right? Like, as we continue in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see those that didn't want to see Jesus. Those that chose to be blind to him. Those that were hardened in their heart because they didn't want to accept who he was. But there were people that anticipated him. There were people that desired to know him. And those people, they're the ones coming to see John right now in this passage. They were there for what was about to come. So in today's world, let's bring it back to us. That'd be anybody that desires to hear of who Christ is, how he might save them, how they might know him. Those that understand or have an inkling or desire to really know the depths of what it means that God has brought some kind of salvation into the world and you can have it. Those are the type of people that we're talking about today that relate to the Jewish people that were there at that point. And prayerfully, if you're one of those people tonight, prayerfully, you understand what it means that Jesus was this long-awaited promise of salvation. And uh, I just want to encourage you, if that's you tonight, like you understand that or you want to understand that, you want to desire that, like take John's next words very personally. Because what John says and what we're about to read, um, it's in response to those that desire to know Christ, to those that desire to know this long-awaited one. All right, verse 7, back in the text, Luke 3, 7. John said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. So the people that came to hear John preach and be baptized him, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So what should our response be if we have this understanding that Jesus is to come and that Jesus is the long-awaited one? Well, John says that your response should be to not rest in false security. Don't rest in a false security, but instead bear the fruits of repentance because the fruits of repentance is what's going to show that you are saved and that you are in a relationship with Christ. Like he's telling the Jewish people right here that they can't just use Abraham as an excuse. That's why he's talking about Abraham because that's how Jews identified themselves. They're like, my father is Abraham, a.k.a. I'm a Jew, a.k.a. I'm already saved. And what John is saying is that's not enough anymore. Because God can take these rocks and turn them into people that belong to Abraham. That is not what is going to bring you salvation. Just resting on your laurels and your heritage is not what is going to save you. Don't rest in the fact that you're a Jew. Just like for you, 
don't rest in the fact that you're a Christian. That you had Christian parents or that you went to a Christian church or you go to a Christian church or you go to a Christian school or you come to a Christian uh, college group. Don't rest in the fact that you do Christian things and that you might live in a Christian-based country because those things, just assuming that title, is not what is going to save you. Because surely his, God has shown us time and time again that there are many a person who claim to represent Jesus and there are many things that are created in the name of Christianity that bear no resemblance to who Jesus was. Just saying you are is not enough. And John is saying that right here. If you desire to know Christ, you, just calling yourself a Christian is not it. Not enough to save you. Not enough to save you from eternal damnation. Not enough to make you a child of God. Not enough to make you know Jesus in a way that's intimate and personal and causes your sanctification to look more like him. What we call it is just lip service, right? Just giving lip service of the Lord. Just resting on our own laurels. Just putting our salvation in something false. And giving you probably the most dangerous place to be, right? To think that you're saved and rest on that and not actually be. Probably one of the most dangerous places to be. But Luke, recording John's words here, that's not the end of the story, right? He's just not beating them over the head with like, you can't do this, you can't do this. Like he gives them a solution. The, the true solution to the problem. And, and what is it? It's repentance. Not just the, the service, the lip service of saying that you repent or saying that you're a Christian, but he says the solution is what? To show fruit, to bear fruit in repentance, meaning that you say you repent and that you actually do it in a way that's visible not only to God and to you, but visible to those around you. That the fruit would be evident like you see an apple on a tree. When you see a bright red apple hanging on a tree, what do you know right away? That's a healthy tree. It's producing fruit. I know what's going on there. And what John is saying is you need to bear fruit of repentance in order to truly be saved. Like if you truly view Christ as the prophesied one, the long-awaited one from God, you're not going to just rest on the title of being Christian to save you, but you're going to desire to know Jesus through the act of repentance. And, and I want to just wrap up tonight. I want to end tonight with giving you the definition of repentance. I don't want to leave it vague. Repentance is, is two parts, right? The first part, we, we might get a little more. It's the easiest to do in the sense of making it look like it. The first one is the act of, of turning away from your sins. Right? And when I say sins, I mean the things that you know violate God's laws, the things that you know separate you from him, just like Adam and Eve became separated from him. You know, the beautiful thing is I don't even have to list them and say them because you're being convicted of them. The Spirit is working in you to reveal those things to you. That's what he does. The first act is, is turning away from those things that we hold so dearly. And by turning away, I mean stopping them, quitting them, changing how you act, changing how you think, changing what you do, to not do them anymore, putting barriers in your way so that you can't possibly do them 
anymore. But like I said, repentance is, is two parts, right? That's just the first part. But just doing that first part is not enough because you know what we call that? We call that works. We call that resting in the works of what you're doing, your good deeds to save you. And that's not what scripture reveals either. No, the second part, the second part completes the entire thing. And that is not only to turn away from your sin, but to turn towards God in Christ, to humble yourself and turn towards Jesus. It's not just that you would stop doing what is bad, but that you would turn to the one who is good. Like to sincerely desire to please him and to know him. Because it's only through that desire to know him that you can even have the strength to stop committing those sins in the first place. Otherwise, it's just behavior management. It's only through desiring Christ and repenting and humbling ourselves to come to him that we're given the power in the first place to be transformed. And I just want to end with the statement, every single one of us is broken. That is, a, that, is a, that is a law. That is a fact. That every single one of us was or is separated from God. The only difference is that some of us choose to repent. Some of us choose to turn away from what we know to be wrong and to turn towards Christ. And some of us don't. Either because we just literally don't want to and that's what we say. Or we, we pretend to. Or we put on a good show. We do the first part of repentance where we make it look like at least that we're not committing those things. But it's secretly, we're still treasuring that. We're holding dearly onto our sin. Because we think that that's what's going to bring us salvation. That's what's going to bring us life. Some of us just choose to call ourselves Christians and do Christian things and attend Christian events. All while just resting on that name. I'm a Christian to save us. But um, I can't make that call for you, right? At the end of the day, I can't make the call of where you stand or what's going on in your life and what you need to do. But the one equipped to do that is one willing to do that, our Lord, God. So here's what I want to do. We're not going to have an altar call. We're not going to make anyone stand up that wants to accept Christ, nothing like that. What I want to do is I want to take a moment and I just want to pray for you. I want to give you a bit of space to think. You probably fall in one of three categories. One, you need to repent. You have not accepted Christ. You do not desire him. You might be resting on your Christian laurels of saying you're a Christian. But you haven't done any of those things. And it's time to come to know Jesus. It's time to come to true salvation. To see him as this long-awaited promise of salvation. And actually receive that. That might be you tonight. Two, you might be a person that has done that, and it's like mud has sort of gotten your eyes, and you need to, you need to just refocus, re-clear, seek the Lord again, recommit to that, right? Recenter your life on Christ as we talk about. Or third, you might be doing great. You might be in a place where you're like, I'm loving the Lord, I'm feeling great, like, I feel like he's working in my life, I can so clearly see it. You might be one of those three. And that third one, I want to encourage you in this moment, pray for those around you and pray for those that you know, that they would also fall into that category with you and that you'd see them to that point of knowing the Lord.